This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. We've got you for an hour of science now. In the studio with me is Dr. Catherine. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Looking Thank fit. You. Yeah, I love love this summer weather, so it yeah. uh, keeps me happy. Well, you're a physio. You, you want people to go out and do stuff and then have to come and see you. I do. Well, not have to come and see me, but go <laughs> out and keep active. That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Uh, I am actually. You've yeah. been traveling. I was. I, 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 went, I went to the UK the long way. I went to the States for a day, the UK, then back to the States, then a week there, and then Ooh. collapsed when I got home. Yeah. But it was a good visit. All yeah. work, all visiting companies, conference, hmm. lots of fun. Yeah, School good. science. Well, uh, we have an hour of science for you folks. We've got some news, uh, probably at the start and the end of the show, and we've got a couple of guests in the middle. We're going to start off with you, Dr. Catherine, with some news from the week. What do you got? Well, Dr. Shane, I have uh, previously done or talked about research around coffee on this show before, because as as you know, I'm a massive coffee fan. Uh, but this week, I couldn't go past another coffee story. Okay. And this is um, some research that's come out of Brisbane, the, um, the University of Queensland and the Research Institute up there, looking at potentially some insights into why people drink more coffee than others and why people enjoy coffee. So what they were looking at, well, it's known that consumption of caffeine, uh, mm-hmm. or coffee, tea and alcohol, may be related to how people, our individual perception of the bitter taste of these drinks but we've really poorly understood up until now what the cause of that is so what this study did is they looked at over 400,000 participants in a biobank in the United Kingdom and they were looking at genetic variances of a few different aspects including caffeine and what they found was uh, actually the more sensitive you are to the bitter taste of coffee actually no I'll ask you this first do you think if you're more sensitive to the bitter taste of coffee do you think you drink more or less coffee well, you'd probably figure you'd drink less. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because like, you wouldn't like it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or do you drink more and just do what the Americans do and put so much sugar in it? <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. That's that's that. true. Yeah. Well, and that's what the researchers hypothesised, that if you were more sensitive to the bitter taste, you would drink less. But actually, this study has proven it's the opposite, mm. that the more sensitive you are to that, uh, the more coffee people consume. And in fact, that's inversely or um, directly relation, uh, inversely proportional to consumption of tea. But that's probably around the fact that if you're drinking more coffee, you have less time to drink tea. But researchers think it's to, potentially to do with the um, your ability to sense the bitter taste of coffee and then relate this to the good behaviours of coffee. So that thought that, you know, you're very sensitive to the taste. You know, you're going to get up in the morning, drink coffee, it makes you feel better. Uh, you're much more sensitive to yeah. that, that flavour. So, And they looked at a number of other genetic variants and it comes down to how we perceive bitter taste in terms of whether we drink more or less coffee and tea and alcohol. So it's very interesting. Yeah, so you can link it to your genes. You so can. It was you interesting. Can. I, I had the privilege of running an event, or you know, being the MC of a panel for Victoria University on Friday night. Wait, Fuchs was Clay. that the Twitter feed where you're sitting in that really comfortable leather chair, looking oh, very relaxed? It was glorious. The chair they gave me this chair, which was you know Game, Game of Thrones esque. Uh, it was great in this re- really really uh, niche facility there in um, in Footscray, and I went next door to this sort of little shop next door um, right beforehand, and because they said there's there's coffee there, and I don't normally drink coffee, but I've been having a bit more coffee lately maybe one a week and the lady you said to me, you can tell because he's like really wired <laughs> well i haven't had one today this is, this is still having an effect from friday yeah. um anyway and the lady said to me i said you know one takeaway latte and she said oh would you like sugar and this is where i struck on this great moment 
to make baristas work harder for you? And they said, well, I usually only add sugar to bad coffee, so I'll let you be the judge of whether or not it will need sugar. And she looked at me, and very sternly she said, it won't need sugar. <laughs> but then the, to- the coffee, it took quite a while for her to make it, and, but it was actually really good. And I thought, it's this is something from now on I'm going to use all the time. If they say, you know, do you want any sugar? I'm going, well, I'll let you be the judge of that. So, <laughs> so we could give someone, we were saying off air before, we could prepare with the new CRISPR technology, a virus that actually makes everyone want coffee. We could edit people's genes and, and force them to want more coffee. Quite potentially, or potentially the other way, because the other you know, way. drinking a lot of coffee is not a good thing, so it's, uh, yeah. it's see, interesting. See, you know, scientists listening to the radio and people in turn, oh, that's not ethically reasonable. But you know, there's at least one one marketing person somewhere <laughs> yeah. going, no, yeah. let's do it. Could we? No. <laughs> Should we? Could and, we? Uh, and to be fair, it depends where you are. I mean, you know, there's countries in the world where people are talking about head transplants. And so yeah. I really think a, a coffee-altering genetic virus would be, you know, relatively minor by comparison. So, anyway. yeah, why not? Why not? Well, it, it, but, what, you know, it's coffee. You'd go, really, do we need to? It's already addictive yeah. in the caffeine. Yeah. Isn't that enough? <laughs> I'm sure the industry's going <laughs> to sell more. Dr. Ray, what do you got for us? Uh, I, I have a, a very interesting zoology story. And the headline just, it, it just, it caught me. I couldn't not read about it. Skull collecting ants slay with acid. Wow. And you're like, whoa. Okay. I, I knew the ant world was violent, but I didn't know it was like predator violent. Uh, and, and so this is actually a, a really interesting story out of uh, North Carolina Museum of National Science where they studied a particular type of ant called the Formica archibaldi. Uh, and what they find is the, the, the Formica archibaldi nest is littered with the skulls of, uh, of a dead type of different species of ant. Uh, it's basically called the trap jaw ant because it's got a spring-loaded jaw. It's actually bigger than the archibaldi ant, which is kind of interesting too. Um, but it's, it, like, their nest is littered with them and so there's skulls everywhere. Um, and what they found that unusual is most ants don't specialize for one particular type of prey. Hmm. Ants are opportunists. They will attack different things. And, you know, the week they get a praying mantis, hey, that's great. Everybody's eaten a lot. But, but you know, they're, they're quite varied. And so they were studying these ants, which are uh, native to southwestern U.S. and Florida, trying to understand why are, are the Archibaldi nests littered with this particular type of dead ant. And and it came down to two things, because this ant is smaller than the trapdoor one, so it has to be a very good hunter. And, and it's a combination of things. And, and then again, this is where evolution is kind of amazing sometimes. The, um, Archibaldi ant. So, of course, do you know how ants communicate? If you walked up and wanted to know, Dr. Shane, if I walked up to you and I was an ant and you were an ant, how would you know that I was from the same nest as you? I, I don't know. Presumably we'd smell something. Well, actually we do. We'd smell with our antennas and we would mm. smell the waxy coating on each other. Okay. Yep. Not not like dogs. But mm. uh, we'd smell this waxy coating and go, oh, you're from this nest. Well, the Archibaldi ant has the same waxy coating as the trap jaw ant. And, and so it mm. can, the, 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 the Archibaldi ant is kind of, it's like a, a, a chemical camouflage. And that allows it to get closer to and be a much more effective hunter for the trapdoor ant. And it can jump on top of it. And so that gets it in. But then its kill shot is it sprays formic acid and paralyzes the ant. From a gland. Wow. So you're like, wow, yeah, that's, nasty. that's yeah. pretty nasty. And so then it paralyzes it. And this study benchmarked uh, its more effective killing abilities, more effective predatory abilities, and, and that they actually tested the chemical coating spectroscopically to show that it was the same. And Because people have seen this in ants for quite a while. For mm. this ant, they've observed it in the nest, but they didn't know why. Mm. And uh, I just kind of went, yeah. So what size are the, the two ants? Uh, so neither one is bigger than a bull ant. Um, they're probably... 
you know, kind of kind of generic black ant style centimeter, millimeter. Yeah, yeah, and, and actually the Archibaldi one's significantly smaller than the trap jaw. Mm. So the trap jaw is probably maybe small bull ant size. Yeah, yeah, bull ants uh, can get pretty big. Mm. Yeah, buggers. Uh, okay, now I, I want to talk you through something here. This is a piece of science that I just found absolutely fascinating. But you're gonna have to stick with me for a minute because there's some there's some detail in here. Um, one of the things that people have been doing for a little while now in astronomy is they they generate these things called guide stars. So if you think of a a ground-based telescope and it's looking up at the night sky one of the problems of doing that is you get all this um, fluctuation in whatever you're looking at because of our atmosphere so the light coming from a star for example gets sort of wobbled around a little bit because of our atmosphere and what you'd like to be able to do is correct for that wobble so you'd be able to get much higher resolution images you know similar to what you'd get from Hubble outside of our atmosphere so what what research has been doing for many years is they've been firing these large lasers up into the mesosphere this is an area where there's a whole lot of sodium and what happens is the lasers excite the sodium atoms and then they glow and what you do is you look at that glow and you know exactly what that glow should look like because you created it and it and it comes down to you and it doesn't look like what it should. And you then know what the atmosphere has done to it. And if you know what the atmosphere has done to the sodium light, you can say, oh, well, here's how we compensate for the rest of the light we're seeing as well. And you can make those corrections. It's called adaptive optics. Is, isn't that a reasonable extrapolation given the distance of your guide star versus the stars you're looking at? Yeah, is... yeah. Well, they all come through the same amount of atmosphere. And okay. you've got to remember the atmosphere is fairly thin. And this is yeah. – the, the mesosphere is at about 85 to 100 kilometers. There's not there's yeah. not a huge amount of atmosphere beyond that. So, so that's most of it. Now, here's something interesting, though. An area of the Earth that we're really fascinated by is the magnetic field of the Earth, and measuring that is quite hard. So if I said to you, well, how would you use one of these guide stars – to actually make measurements of the magnetic field. I mean, this is not... You haven't got a little compass up there. Um, so how would you measure the magnetic field of the Earth using these things? Can you use a laser of a different wavelength to excite iron? Well, actually, here's, here's the fascinating thing. When you, when you excite these, um, these little sodium atoms, what happens is you create a whole lot of what look like little magnets. So they're called, it's called the spin of an atom, and you basically create each one into like a little magnet. And these magnets interact with the magnetic field up there in, in the atmosphere. And what happens is they they sort of process like a spinning top. So these little magnets, imagine all these little sodium little magnets um, up there in the atmosphere, they're all sort of processing, they're all sort of wandering like a spinning top. And the way in which they wander depends on a couple of things, right? First of all, it depends on the strength and direction of the magnetic field that they're in. And second, it depends on how we create them using this this laser system. So what we can do is we can basically set up a scenario where if if we shine the, the, the laser in a certain way, so in a certain sort of sequence, so certain timing, then we can make these little sodium atoms glow more or less brightly. If we match the laser's frequency or the, 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 the way in which we um, drive these things, to the wandering of these things around the field. So think of this spinning top, and it, spin, it sort of processes around at a certain rate. If we match our laser to that rate, then it glows more brightly than it would otherwise glow, and we can work out exactly when that's brightest. Once we work out exactly when that's brightest, that also tells us exactly what magnetic field that little sodium atom is sitting in. So in an indirect way, 
just by looking at the brightness of these things, we can actually determine the precise parameters of the magnetic field in the atmosphere, which is not what these guys does were designed to do originally, but researchers have managed to do this just recently, and they've got these incredibly precise results for the magnetic field in the mesosphere, which is at 85 kilometres. You can't just go up there and measure it that easily. It's not, not an easy place to get to. Do they vary it spatially? Do they go around the globe in different spots? To... Yeah, well, um, this well, at the moment, they've done it right above one of these telescopes. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, the, so the first test has been, at a, I think they did it... Um, at one of the sort of larger, because not not all telescopes have these guys. So I mean, these these lasers are very powerful and they're you know very costly. But there's a few locations around the world where they're used. And so if you can you can basically measure it at sort of four or five points, you you know get a good idea of the 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 way in which the magnetic field in that region um, varies. And you know we we have a lot of indirect information about magnetic field. You know we can look at the um, southern and and northern lights. That that yeah. gives us a lot of information about the magnetic magnetic field. We can fly certain balloon experiments and so forth to certain heights but once you get to 100 kilometers is a fair fair you know height to be at and to do it indirectly but with such specificity remember you got this little little sodium atom and it looks a certain brightness and all of a sudden it's like tuning in a radio station you tune it into that precise frequency and bang the thing brightens up and that's when it's matched to what it's doing in the magnetic field, and you know exactly what that field strength is. That's that's kind of cool. That's I, very that's clever. Fun stuff. So they've done, yeah, they've done that. It's um, yeah, it's it's relatively new, but uh, it, it will be something that people are using quite a bit. So there you go. Anyway, love the astronomy stuff. Triple. Now, <sighs> yeah, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Triple R. In the studio with us now is Dr. Connie Wong. She's the Heart Foundation Future Leader Fellow in the Centre for Inflammatory Diseases in the Department of Medicine at Monash University. Connie, welcome to Triple R. Good morning, and it's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you in here. Now, um, we've got you in because you've just received a $1.25 million CSL Centenary Fellowship. That is a that is a big get. It's a tremendous honour. It's awesome. Yeah. I get to keep my job for another few years. Oh, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a bit of money. Now, what I want to do first is start off with some of your work from a few years back because you work in in regards to stroke mm. and i have to say i hadn't heard some of this stuff uh and we've had a lot of stroke people on mm. on the show um but a few years ago you you were looking at how when someone has a stroke it essentially dulls our immune system i haven't heard That's that before right. tell us what's going on there well most of us know stroke as being a brain injury mm. uh, it's the leading cause of disability and death in australia but one of the less well-known but highly prevalent and sometimes fatal complication is infection. Hmm. So my lab is basically trying to guess and wonder and test why patients with stroke have an impaired immune system to fight off these infections. Mm. Um, we've done a whole bunch of uh, experiments and we are studying the link how the brain talks to the immune system. And what we think is happening is the brain is actually trying to save itself by right. dampening the immune system okay. because when the brain is damaged, inflammation starts. Yep. And when inflammation starts, you have white blood cells in your periphery trafficking to move towards the brain and cause swelling. Mm. Now, inflammation we see every day when we sprain an ankle, ankle swells mm. the brain is encased within a vault yeah, nowhere to go skull. Yeah. nowhere to go so to save it the brain is quite smart it's tried to tell the immune system dampen down but this reduced immune defense caused the body to have a susceptibility and mm. increased risk to infection mm. now wh- what's what's the deal with the time frames here because i can imagine you know this is something that in terms of infections mm. uh, you would have to have that that reduced scenario for a little while 
But presumably in terms of stroke, the brain only really needs to cover its butt on this inflammation issue for a short period of time. I mean, are the two time frames overlapping there? What, what, what's going on? Yeah, the brain gets uh, inflamed very quickly within 24 hours. Mm. And what we see from the patient is that the, uh, the time of which they get risk have risk of infection is between three to seven days okay so it's short it's short yeah. it's acute but mm. when we study these patients for longer their risk actually continues to be increased at even 12 months or a year 12 months or a year yeah wow so yeah. there's a there's a dulling of the immune system for, for extended period yeah. wow that's, that's and this is a completely ignored previously and we we yeah. very interested in studying that yeah so you should be mm. yeah. so does that mean, it, where's the infection come from? Is this, I need to stay away from a family member who's sick? Or <laughs> is it external factors? Or where does the where's the common source for infection, particularly in that short three to seven day period? Yeah, that's uh, my major uh, research question. And we've, what we found out is that following a stroke, our gut barrier gets broken down. And what happens is we are actually the biggest reservoir of bacteria. Not only does the brain injury dampens our immune system, it weakens our gut barrier, allowing bacteria to escape and travel to other places and cause fatal infection. All right, but so you explained why the brain mm. fiddles with the inflammation response. Is this uh, is this causative from the brain as well? Does it is there an advantage to protecting the brain and making the gut? do less or what's the connection from the stroke to the gut permeability well, the brain if you think about it is basically your uh your central to your body it's trying to save itself so mm. all the energy is invested to try to repair the hub your center of your consciousness which is the brain so if there's control is lost in the gut the gut becomes relaxed your immune system becomes relaxed and now that's where you're susceptible for opportunistic pathogens such as those that are coming from the gut Mm. And so where does the infection sort of, um, where does it show up? Is it in the lungs or the bone or where does it typically um, show? The most common infections are pneumonia, so infections for the lung, as well as urinary tract infections. So those are the most common sites of infection for patients with stroke. Mm. Well, th these infections normally wouldn't be a huge problem, though, would they? I mean, they wouldn't kill us. You're talking about these things killing us. So, you know, it's like it's like someone who's immunodeficient. Yes, that's mm. exactly right. Um, it feels like it's, 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 it's a double remy. Why would yeah. the patient with stroke have a, a, some increased susceptibility to infection? But... Uh, I guess that's how our brain works, is try to save itself by, I guess, rendering the host to infection. And with the um, therapies, hopefully we can shut down the susceptibility to increase our immune system back mm. again. So so after someone has a stroke and there's an awareness that this happens for the immune system, although maybe you said that's not a big focus, but, but they must see that these infections happen. So what's the treatment now when somebody has a stroke? How do they go, oh, they might end up with a lung infection? What do they normally do? The current uh, state of care is giving antibiotics to patients when there's signs of infection. Unfortunately, it's not and it's not without um, um, trying, culturing bacteria to see what's actual bacteria that's causing this infection. It's difficult to get bacteria culture from sputum mm. or blood from patients. Um, unfortunately, antibiotics with many, many clinical trials have shown it's not 100% effective. So what we really need to do as a basic scientist is go back to the drawing board to figure out what the signaling pathway is, where we can intervene and try to avoid the use of ineffective antibiotics mm. in the clinics. So here's a question for you, Connie. Mm. Is the brain... So here's something, because the brain's not meant to have stroke. I mean, mm. that's, you know, this is an error. I always find it interesting where a lot of biological processes you can nailed down to 
what would have given us an advantage on the savannah when the lion was chasing us? Stroke is not in that category because, you know, it's not supposed to do that. So my question is, is the brain dulling the immune system after it senses inflammation or is it dulling the immune system immediately? Because there's, I think there's a difference there because if we could turn off the inflammation immediately when someone has stroke, then maybe the brain wouldn't do this to the immune system. That's but right. if it's just doing this anyway because yeah. it knows that inflammation will then occur, yeah. then dulling the inflammation won't help. Yeah, I was do do the, we know? Yeah, yeah I, I, I was involved in a study trying to figure out which one was earlier, mm. which was next. What we think is happening is inflammation happens first in the brain. Okay. So obviously if we can save the brain, mm. the immune system will not be imp- suppressed. Yeah, to, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, as, as you pointed out, I've been in the stroke research for over 10 years now. All the trials looking at protecting the brain after stroke has failed. Mm. And again, we really need to go back to the drawing board to f- realize brain inflammation is very different to inflammation to other parts of the body. And we have to figure out what's the basic signaling pathways to save the brain so that we can also not suppress the immune system. Mm. So, so what, about, um, what about the timing here? Because... I know, you know, Victoria even has now this stroke ambulance, which is there to awesome. basically yep. provide, you know, stroke care on the spot because there's that, you know, that golden hour or whatever it's called. Yeah, 4.5 hours. 4.5 four hours, so yeah. it's better than I thought. Um, but, you know, where if you, can, if you can get, and I don't remember the name of the chemical, but whichever one it is, if you yep. can get that into the patient and you have to know the right one. So my yeah. understanding is you give the wrong one, it lets you bleed out and That's die. Right. Yeah. You get the right one, and it protects the brain, and you're healthy. And in order to determine that, you need to be able to do an MRI very quickly. This is, and hence the stroke ambulance does that on site. That's correct. Yeah. So with those chemicals, I mean, or with that, you know, that sort of approach, if you get there early. So if I have a stroke and you get to me in 15 minutes and you do the right thing, am I still susceptible at that point to this, you know, immunodeficiency problem or have you dealt with that early enough? I would think you would have dealt with that early enough, mm. um, but bear in mind the four and a half hours to get the TPA drug, which is a yep. clot buster, it's, it's a real-life fairly low occurrence, it's probably 10% of patients with stroke will get that drug because of the 4.5 hours of window. You have to remember the brain damage happens. We don't see the effect or the symptoms of it until hours later. So even the patient itself will have, you know, you've got the classic symptoms of face dripping, uh, immobility and things like that. Don't come until probably five or six hours later. Is that right? And and some people can ignore it and go back to work and and actually call the ambulance very, very late. So so what would you see in the first hour? What what would give you a clue in the first hour that something's happening? Uh, numbness of your body. Okay. Um, yep. Some people think it's back pain, but go to the hospital. Um, yeah. If you have uh, risk factors such as hypertension, diabetes, be aware of some of these symptoms as well because yeah. you're likely to be having a stroke and not just some back pain or, or numb arm. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, um, you know, the number of times when you, you, you go to – you go to a, to a hospital and, and, you know, I think people feel this, you know, that the wait times are so yeah. large. Um, they're not sure, you know, they've just got some back pain, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, but this is one of those things where we, we almost need a, 
a different part of the medical system mm. that just deals with that. You know, if you've got numbness and back pain, you just go to this person. You don't go to a hospital emergency room. You're, you know, like we're, we're missing we're missing a step there yep. um, that puts people off from from going and getting checked. Yeah, but when you uh, get to the ER, luckily with most of the hospital in Victoria, we have dedicated stroke units. Mm. So these are clinicians that knows exactly when what a patient's for. having a stroke. So yep. we'll go in there and, and try to save your brain as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. Some of the other things that um, in the public campaigns for people to look out for are trouble with speech, slurring of speech is a really early sign, um, and and trouble walking or trouble getting upstairs. They can be really subtle things, but they can be particular signs that something something not right is going on. So getting back to where you're going with your fellowship, you said how the gut relaxes, and you you gave us a time frame for the immune system. What's the time frame for the gut? So when does it go from bleeding out or leaking bacteria to to going back to normal. What's the time scale for that? It's it's funny because uh, with with the uh, models that we're looking at, it's transient. It happens very early on, three hours after uh, stroke have happened, and it actually recovers itself. And we are very interesting to not looking at why it opens up, but also the shutting down. So we can, if we can harness the biological path, uh, pathways where it shuts down, maybe we can use that to from the first go to, as I, mm. I wrote in a media release, as a gap filler mm. <laughs> for our gut. It's fascinating. I, so I, that's I, crack spackle for your gut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I heard a um, I heard a term the other day that I realised has to be my my thing for um, 2019. And it was brain microbiome. Mm. It, it, this is this idea that you know this whole bacterial. You know, we always talk about the microbiome in the gut, and everyone's excited about that, and no one really knows how it works yet. And you know, there's there's so much going on in the gut. And the number of neurons in the gut is ridiculous, and all these things. But I hadn't heard this term brain microbiome. Yeah. I mean, have, have you come across this, Connie? Is this? I heard it as soon as. You did. You, yeah, you yeah, just like, this week. Yeah, 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 just, yeah, just this week as well. It's been circulating on Twitter for, yeah. for like, amazing. It's it's fascinating. It's fascinating to uh, think of the brain as a non-immune privileged site. We've, yeah. uh, since I was an undergrad and I was doing my PhD, we always thought, ah, oh, an immune cell don't get into brain. It's always immune privilege. Mm-hmm. You have blood brain barrier protectors from that. But now we're figuring out if if the data is real and it's not just some contamination. There is actually a lot of disease of neural. Neurology that we might have mm. to consider the bugs it's bacterial that we get. based, yeah, yeah. yeah, like multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's. We still don't know why motor neuron diseases. Yeah, we don't know why this happens. Yeah, I just find that extraordinary. And then if you've got a scenario where is what the reason I asked that is, and if you've got a scenario where your immune system is compromised by stroke, and you have these living bacteria which are just part of our makeup in our brain all the time. You know, that, that makes this situation a lot more complicated. That's right. That's yeah. right. We are really only scraping the tip of an iceberg here. Yeah. But, so we've, we've talked on the show a couple of times how the brain cleans itself at night. The cells kind of mm. relax a little and you have this, the, the different fluid exchange and analyte exchange. And we joked about, you know, are you tired? Is your brain dirty? Mm. The idea of a microbiome with the, how does that link in with the refreshing how the brain actually flushes analytes and things that that changes the concept of buildup entirely completely mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah so this is i mean this is fresh though isn't it it's about it's, a week old yeah it's exactly, yeah. exactly I, right i saw this yeah. and uh and i said this is going to be my 2019 thing <laughs> learn about this but um it may be that in a week another paper will come out and say oh sorry it was contamination don't, yeah, worry, about yeah. don't worry about it folks like watch um, space but, but certainly it makes sense i mean I, I remember reading a paper a few years back where people were managing to get materials across the blood brain barrier using ultrasound mm-hmm. i'm not sure if you saw that but mm-hmm. using um 
the effect of ultrasound, you could actually open up some of those pore structures sufficiently to get drugs to go across yep. that barrier. I thought, wow, you know, this is amazing because what a lot of people forget is when you need to get medication to the brain, the body's really good at making sure the medication doesn't get to the brain. Yeah. You know, it actually, yep. you know, something like 1% or I don't know the numbers, you, you know the numbers, but, you know, it's such a small percentage of it actually gets to mm. the brain because our body says, no, 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 you're yeah. not getting across that barrier. That's right. But, it, but it, it could be that, you know, we actually may need to get drugs into that region if if there's a bacterial issue that we need to deal with as well yeah. you know it's why that connie look this is um we could talk about this all day because it's, <laughs> fa- it's absolutely fascinating stuff congratulations on getting this csl fellowship i think it's um fantastic we, we had the the person who won it last year on the show and um it's it's thrilling to see that they're using this in stroke and um i, I hope you you can sort some of these things out because thank you very much th- just yeah. that whole idea of our you know the the the, the the stuff in our gut that we need so much that's so important then becoming such a huge problem for us mm. and i had no idea that a person's immune system was dulled out for a couple of years after stroke that's yeah. that's extraordinary it changes their approach to how we we um deal with patients who have had this problem yeah, yeah. Okay. thanks so much dr connie wong is heart foundation future leader fellow from the center for inflammatory diseases in the department of medicine at monash university and the recipient of the 1.2 million dollar csl centenary fellowship for this year yeah. Three, triple, ah. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. And in the studio with us now is Dr. Rosalie Hocking. She's from Swinburne University. Rosalie, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Dr. Shane. It, look, it's great to have you in. We're, we're talking about uh, something here that uh, I suspect is going to be of great interest to everyone. This idea of being able to rip carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere rather than putting it in. We're, we're really good at putting it in, but we're really crap at pulling it out. Um, we're not bad at taking it out. We're bad at doing something with it after we take it out. Well, it's, uh, um, so uh, this idea of artificial photosynthesis has been around for a while. Can you give us a bit of an update on where that's at? Because every time I hear about it, it's, you know, it just seems to not be cutting the mustard. Well, we're getting there with artificial photosynthesis. And I think one of the problems is we need more money and we need to invest more more in actually solving some of these problems. So artificial synthesis is, if you imagine what a leaf does, a mm. leaf does exactly what we need to do to solve all our problems with energy. Yep. A leaf takes in carbon dioxide and spits out glucose. And glucose is a fuel, so if we could spit out glucose, then, well, we could convert it to other types of fuels, we could run all our factories, we could do our chemical synthesis, we could use our cars, and starting with carbon dioxide, so you'd have a closed cycle. The problem is... Well, our leaves can do it. We can't do it very well. Mm. <laughs> and why, so, why is that? Why, why, why are leaves so good at this? Why are plants so good? Uh, evolution was a fantastic thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there are two parts to photosynthesis. I mean, we often you don't you, you probably know that you know um, a leaf will take in takes water and spits out oxygen as a byproduct. That part mm-hmm. we call water splitting. So it takes water and makes oxygen, and then it makes the protons, which we then use the reductive equivalents to combine with CO two and make glucose. Um, why is it so hard? I guess we've studied photosynthesis for a long time and we've had really good experimental handles on one part of that and that's the part that actually does the water splitting. So 
and even though we've had good experimental handles, we probably only in the last five years really began to understand even how the protein part of that works. And following that, you know, in parallel, we have got a lot of materials devices now that are very good at splitting water. So mm-hmm. they can do, they can make oxygen and hydrogen, uh, oxygen yep. and protons, if you like. The carbon dioxide reduction part of it to glucose is a little bit harder. And the biological machinery there... Um, I guess I'm a transition metal chemist and I'm really fond of metals, but it doesn't have any of those. And those are what we can often see in our experiments to study biology. So we have a little bit less of a handle on how that works. Hmm. Nevertheless, we do have devices that can do some of those um, parts of the photosynthesis, but we don't, they don't work very well. They might do a little bit and then stop or sort of work for a short period of time. So they're not got to the point they could actually, you know, for example, make a commercial technology. Um, I was just curious, and is is what is this a challenge? You, tell me if I'm wrong, because there's a good chance I am. So, because I'm a, a chemical engineer, so when I think about doing a chemical reaction, one of the challenges to me is always concentration. And we have very little CO2 in our atmosphere. In fact, when we get a little bit more CO2 in our atmosphere, it looks like a small change, huge impact. So, is 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 one of the challenges in, in getting uh, artificial photosynthesis off the ground commercially is how do you deal with a feedstock that's such a low concentration, you know? Or is that not an issue for biology, or is that not the sticking point? Well, it's not the sticking point for a lot of the technologies that do CO2 reduction because we have a lot of very good sources of CO2, for example, coal-fired power mm-hmm. stations. It is a sticking point for other related system so co2 reduction isn't the only one we want to do i mean if we imagine our kind of vision of a you know a sustainable future with no um, carbon dioxide emitting chemical industries there's a lot of major chemical synthesis processes that actually are pretty heavily polluting another one that i think probably doesn't get enough press is the harbour bosch process that takes nitrogen into ammonia so that particular process uses about three percent of global energy and makes mm-hmm. about 3% of our global CO2 emissions. And to top it off, it uses about 30 to 40% of our um, currently petroleum-derived hydrogen. So it's a pretty messy process. There, concentration is a really important thing because while we have um, about um, 78% nitrogen in the atmosphere, when you actually go into solution, you only get about maybe 8 milligrams per litre of nitrogen mm-hmm. dissolved in water. So if you have a process, then their concentration can be very, very important. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then getting back, so I was wrong, we'll move yeah, on. Yeah. That happens a lot. Uh, so what is the, the sticking point in getting CO2 conversion to a useful chemical? You said devices are sort of worked, or there must be some pa- promising well, I pathways. I we often make devices that work for a short period of time, and then they don't work for a long period of time. And also, the other sticking point, a little bit of selectivity too. So if, if you if you oxidise water, you have only so many things it can oxidise to. It can oxidise to oxygen, and we call them protons, hydrogen atoms. Um, if you try to reduce CO2, and particularly if you try to reduce it in other things like water, there's a lot of products there that mm. you can make. So glucose is the one I gave because that's what photosynthesis makes. But it's probably not one that we chemists talk about commodity chemicals, right? They're the ones we have our eye on in terms of making devices that work. But there's a lot of things you can make, like mm. formates. You can make um, methane, carbon monoxide. All sorts of Some stuff. of those things yeah. are, are quite high value. Some of them are less high value. But in order to – you have to remember, if you're going to have a device in the world we live in, it has to be commercial. It has to be, you know, cost-effective. And so if you could – 
if you're going to make a device, you really want to achieve some selectivity mm. and you want to be able to make something that's worth some money so that somebody would buy it. Yeah. Um, so, so, so Rosalie, how, how, how are you going about um, resolving this? Because you know, there's a lot of people working on this all around the world. I mean, what, what specifically so are you, you doing? My expertise has always been in characterising materials. So I, th- I always felt like that was what I contributed to the world was figuring out how things worked yep. and particularly how things worked at a molecular level. So I have a lot of collaborators who are very much on the device side where they're trying to make the devices. And what they do, they come to me and say, Rosalie, we've got this great device and it works for a little bit of time. We mm-hmm. want to know how it works. The other thing is, I, I think these days there's a lot of, I, w- I call it chemical literacy, but people understand a lot about molecular structure. So if I say to a group of people, you know about the structure of DNA, they know about the structure of DNA, they know about, you know, the amino, they, they know about, you know, the structure yeah. of the double helix. Yeah. But I, I find people don't often give pause to think about how we know that information. Where did it come from? And if you're going to, if you've got something that works for a bit and then stops working, you, you want to kind of understand what's happening at a molecular level. Mm. And particularly if you're trying to engineer selectivity into chemical reactions, understanding what's happening at a molecular level can help you engineer that selectivity. So what I do is I design experiments to help us understand how functional devices work. And a lot of my experiments happen at the Australian Synchrotron. Yep. So yep. you might go, well, what's Synchrotron got to do with characterising materials? So... Um, a lot of what chemists know about materials comes from how light interacts with matter. You, you maybe don't think about it, but a lot of everything everything we know, even from like you know what, how water is H two O, comes from light interacting with matter. And in early times, you know, we started with very simple things that were very pure. Like think about a solution of green food colouring versus a solution of red food colouring. You can see that light is interacting in different Mm. ways with those things. But of course those are very pure systems with one compound. When you want to go to a more complex system with lots of moving parts, um, a device that's perhaps got some potential that would be associated with the sunlight, um, it becomes more complicated and for that we need more specialised sources of light and that's what the Australian synchrotron gives us. It gives us X-ray light that we can tune and then we can do experiments that home in on different parts of our experiment. Mm. And, and there's a, a new beamline going in. There's the quite a few. There's a few yeah. new beamlines going in, but there's one I'm particularly excited about, and that's called the mid-energy X-ray absorption beamline. And I'm particularly excited about that because... Um, that's going to give me access to a whole new energy range at the Australian Synchrotron. So I'm a specialist in a technique called X-ray absorption spectroscopy, and that really sounds um, very, you know, really, really complicated. But it's essentially, if you think about colour and think about, if you think about a prism and it changes the the wave, the the light, the red, orange, green, and you systematically change through those wavelengths and you measured your material, I do that, but with X-rays. Mm. Um, and in the middle energy of X-rays, there's a few really important elements that are important for for me for catalysis research, but important for other people in environmental science. And a particularly important one is sulphur, because um, sulphur is really key to lots of things. In a lot of the materials we study, we find a lot of very effective catalysts for um, CO2 reduction and nitrogen reduction involves sulphur. And sulphur can do a, a lot of redox chemistry. Sulphur, sulphur can go from um, what we call a minus 2 oxidation state to all the way through to sulphate. You may have heard of sulphate. Mm-hmm. And that means it can move a lot of electrons around, which if you want to do something like reduce carbon dioxide, it's really good to be able to move electrons because even though we talk about it as being carbon dioxide to glucose, really what it is is a type of chemical reduction. And we need to do controlled chemical reduction. And for that, we need to do redox chemistry. Mm. So now the synchrotron had a vague recollection of having nine of a possible 
24 be my card. 30. Remember what? 30 possible ones? There's yeah. a lot and, more slots than the. And, yeah, and how many does it now have? How many I'm going to get this wrong, but I think we have about nine. Yeah, that was the number I had in my head. So we get two or three two more. more. I could probably count them for you, but I'm yeah. like, so I might still some, radio still some parking spaces available. There are, yeah. and, and in fact, in other countries, a ring of this mm. size would probably have more of the parking spots filled. That, yeah. That's yeah. 100% true. I've worked yeah. at a lot of synchrotrons around the world, and, yeah, we would have um, maybe for each beam line, they'd often have, like, three or four ones mm. where we have them. If it, if you ever walk around the synchrotron, the Australian synchrotron, you can see these little slots in the wall where they yeah. have the, the bender lines, and so, yeah, there's a lot of capacity there to put on some new beam lines. Yeah, no, look, it sounds fascinating, and I think uh, the idea of uh, really getting into the, this problem with that, that new energy range is great because um, I, I had no idea that that wasn't covered off by what we had. And So, so have you been going to Sakuba or somewhere else in Japan? Sorry, at the moment, yes. So if I yeah. want to do experiments in that mid-energy yeah. range, I have to go, I usually go to Taiwan, actually, right. but okay. um, we could also go to Stanford. In fact, most yeah. synchrotrons around the world have access to that mid-energy range. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're also really excited about the new beamline because um, we do a lot of in-situ experiments, and that means that we, we, we're designing catalysts, so we apply potential, like sunlight, to our yep. materials. And this new beamline that they're building in my in X-ray absorption spectroscopy, it's going to enable us to do a lot more in situ work, which I think is really key when you want to do mm. functional device mm. development. Yeah, look, it sounds great. Rosalie, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us today, and good luck, and hopefully, you know, because we keep cutting trees down, we, you know, maybe we need these artificial photosynthesis sorted out quicker than, than we thought. Uh, thanks for chatting. Dr. Rosalie Hocking is from Swinburne University and working at the Australian Synchrotron as well. 102.7 Uh, yes, you're listening to Triple R. We've got about 10 minutes left on the show, and we've got a few bits of news that we've uh, been hanging on to. We wanted to oh, carve off before the end of the We do. The, the, the first one is a follow-up from last week when you discussed in great detail, I believe, well, about the, yeah. the changes to the metric system. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I... Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're going back to Imperial you, if you missed it. Yeah. Well, well, no. So for those of you that, that, that heard last week would have heard that they're redefining how they define the kilogram and some of the basic units of measure. Because mm-hmm. just as an example, the kilograms, this lead of platinum and iridium in France. And, um, it's the standard. So over time, it's lost 50 micrograms, but it's still a kilogram. Mm. So you can see the problem with that. So, um, they actually, how uh, these units are now defined in constants and it's official. You, you mentioned this was about to happen, but the general conference at the weights and measures in Versailles. Yeah, which there. I wanted to go to because it yeah. sounded so interesting. Um, they, they, they voted to change the definition of the kilogram, which will go into effect on May 20th, 2019. So set that day in your calendars because at yeah. that point you'll be able to carry around the kilogram definition on a business card in your wallet. Yeah. Now, the the best part of that story I saw was the um, scientists that um, in got Planck's constant, which is the scientific constant that's actually used to define the kilogram, tattooed on their arm, <laughs> and underneath they a couple of them got the 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 motto for the metric system, which is for all time for all people. Oh, yeah, there we Th- go. Things I didn't know either. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, just to clarify for people what's happening here is that in the past, all of our standard units were based on generally on physical objects or, or things of that nature. And that's fine. But if, if that physical object, as you say, uh, mm-hmm. is in France and I want to, you know, have a, a local measure of the kilogram mm-hmm. that I can compare to, I've got to 
grab it, grab us, you know, grab some chocolate. Yeah. Measure a kilogram of it next to the one in France. Make sure it's exactly a kilogram. Then bring it back here and pretend that I have the same one for a while. That that's an effort and that's annoying. And so what you want is you want these things to be based on physical parameters that you can measure anywhere in the universe. So, for example, you know, if you were to look at how fast a particular radioisotope decays, that would be a constant no matter where you look at it. And you could use that to measure time. Or if you were to, you know, measure the speed of light in a certain way, well, the speed of light would be the same no matter where you are under certain yeah. circumstances. Rather than having, you know, something, a, a meter being the length of a certain stick um, you could have a meter based around how far light travels in a certain amount of time and you you have those calculations to determine these measurements now instead of well where's that stick that we had that's a <laughs> yeah. meter long because i need to i need to just check that my tape measures you know calibrated properly so it's, it, it changes the parameters yeah, and, and for the kilogram everyone had to agree that the constant was going to be this mm, that the yeah. constant's called planck's constant it has a unit of kilogram something per yeah. second something and um that it is actually this number so we're yeah. all going to use this number when we calculate how much a kilogram yeah. is. And, and the good point is the the actual the actual value of a kilogram hasn't changed no. it's just how we get to it so the value of the kilogram is still yeah, based you, on this you, you, this mass in you're still going to weigh the same bananas are still going to cost as much unless there's a cyclone in queensland yeah. so yeah so, Dr. Ray, we're waiting until the 20th of May next year. Is that right? Yes. For the change. Is there something significant about that date? It didn't say so Just in the a, article. A random yeah. date, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think they'd, they'd probably need time for everyone to, you know, there'd be certain things that you do need to adjust in terms of how you're going to go about that. And every country has essentially a, a standards institute of some yeah. type. And so there's there's a lot of work to, to change over all these reference yeah, points. In, in Australia, it's the yeah. National Measurement, NMI. Yeah. NMI, yeah, National Measurement Institute. Um, and, and to give people an idea just how important this is, you think, wait, but aren't the Americans still on imperial units and that's a little archaic? Do you know now that at the National Institutes and Standards in the U.S., how they define the foot and the pound? Uh, as particular no. fractions of the meter and the kilo. Oh, that's nice. So they're actually, those U.S. units of measure are defined on the on the metric system. <laughs> They'll get there. They'll yeah. get there one day. There's a lot of science to change. I mean, to be fair, there's a lot of roads. A lot of science. Yes. Now, what else um, do you have? I, I just had a, a follow-up story. It was a... I'm not sure they, they came out with anything new, but there were a couple of things I didn't realize about the impacts of outdoor artificial light. Mm. And the reason why this caught my eye was because you had reported a story where a city in China is basically making the G.I. Joe cartoon version of the um, artificial moon, uh, artificial moon mm. where they thought that was a great way to save money on streetlights. Light, street yeah. yeah. and, and this was a discussion about uh, outdoor, outdoor artificial light. And there's two types, as I learned. There's direct lighting, which is light bleeding that's not capped and the light going up but actually it's light that goes up that then actually can go out horizontally and then you get several kilometers more of light so a a city light becomes a rural light right and 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 the other impact is this thing called sky and those are brighter Hmm. the other impact is sky glow Hmm. so this is light that goes up that then scatters off dust water particles in our atmosphere and actually permeates further uh in, in lights up the sky now it's a lower light level than direct lighting, but still can significantly affect biological processes. And so what you see, uh, we, we've already mentioned this before, you can see uh, biological rhythms, circadian rhythms affected in animals and plants that they, they get more confused and might start to blossom or might not close up or, or get confused by light. And it has impacts on people well as well because it can affect melatonin expression. Mm. Now, one thing I did not know was that there's always there's kind of 
guides for what type of light you should use. Warmer lights have generally been used in um, in street lights, but if we remember older street lights like the sodium lights that had a very particular kind of spooky light color to them, what, what we noticed was is that our initial strategies for street lighting didn't really show colors the way we see them in sunlight. So there's been a lot of work in making lights a larger color spectrum, yeah. uh, and particularly LEDs have been really a cheap way to do this as well, and we get a lot more blue light in our spectrum. Which is interesting because that actually are the wavelengths that affect melatonin expression yeah, even more. Yeah. Uh, and, and so there's yeah. there's a, a real concern about what's happening with outdoor and artificial light. And there's an argument in this uh, perspective in um, uh, science that there should be some guides about reining this in, about only using as much light as you need, thinking about the spectrum you're using, trying to limit that type of bleeding light. Uh, you know, and sky glow. I remember it's probably not as common in Australia, but growing up as a kid, I used to love it when it would snow mm. at night because the the sky glow then is just amazing from all the scattered light and it's almost kind of pinkish between the horizon and the cloud layer, yeah, and yeah. and you wouldn't see that as, as much here. And and uh, but just this discussion and implication, I just thought, well, if they're starting to really look at the spectrum and things, and then they think about. What's the implications of bouncing moonlight around, which is a pretty broad spectrum, in those in those cities in China? I mean, are, you're going to have people that are more tired. You're going to have confused animals. You're going to have mm. plants doing different things. We're already a 24/7 society. I don't I don't think we need the light on all the time. So th- I think there's some interesting scientific questions about how you should approach that. Yeah, and you definitely don't want to be a backyard astronomer if uh, yeah. someone chucks an extra artificial moon up. Astronomers well, hate it when the moon's up. Well, there's this this energy cost versus uh, productivity saving in society. If everyone's more tired and plants stop working, and mm-hmm. you know, animals don't do the right things, do you spend more energy correcting for that? What's the... Have we yeah. done that life cycle balance yeah, yeah. on energy? Out, so. But also the health consequences as well of not sleeping. It's not just being tired. It's also oh, yeah. risk of diseases and, and mm. it just escalates. Cost, cost you know, we, did we, we save on streetlights and we're paying it all in healthcare. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. So speaking of healthcare, I wanted to just mention very quickly that two new uh, Swedish studies have looked at over 650,000 uh, children and their exposure to farm animals and dogs and uh, have looked at... Um, how much it cuts the chances of asthma in, in young children. It's up to 13% lower risk. So, I mean, we've known this for a while, but it's good to see some of these large studies coming out just confirming it. But, you know, get, get a dog, people. If you've got kids, it's good for them. Well, take them out. Take okay. them out of the city. Because I was going to play with cows. But get a dog yeah. sounds easier. Yeah, but, you know, just exposure. It's that exposure therapy thing we know so much about now. Were there any particular dogs? Because you know how some dogs are very good for people who have al- allergies? Well, yeah, but those dogs, are, those dogs are bred so that they don't have allergies to the dogs. I think what... This study is saying is that mild exposure to the allergens is what gives you the protection. So it's the exact yeah. opposite of, the, you know, the labradoodle or whatever they are, you know, that, that people don't get allergic to. We actually want, no, we want, we want kids exposed to the ones very early on when they're, when they're children, very young children, exposed to, to the allergens so that they, their immune system learns how to adjust to them rather than, you know, it's that hygiene hypothesis scenario of, you know, exposure being a, a healthy thing to train the immune system. So it doesn't mean you roll around with the dog. This means you have a dog and you interact a little bit with the dog or you go to a farm every now and then. So there we go. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, to an hour of science. Dr. Catherine, great to see you. Thank you very much. And Dr. Ray, good to see you again. Good to see you. We've only got a few shows to go. Just, we had our 100th 
and our 101st guest today for the year. Oh, wow. So, yeah, but a few, still a few to go. We've got more to come, folks, so we'll have more science for you in the coming week. But until then, I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.